to episode 127 of the podcast, official podcast, I'm your host, site expert, Adam McGee, and joining me as usual, on the keys, is the one and only, Jordan Tresky. Hello, Jordan. Hello. The gimmick has survived. God help us all. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's maybe it's the only safe thing we have in our, our lives right now that we know from week to week. Okay, Jordan. Jordan is really gonna kind of overplay and eventually wear us down with his keyboard gimmick. But at least we know that's what there's going to be. More than can be said for the books run office right now, though. Yes. Much like my all jokes... People relent to it at first, and then they realize it's not going to stop, and then they start enjoying. That's me. You basically pummel people to death with jokes. Yes. That's that's the Jordan Tresky experience. Figuratively, and quite possibly literally. We don't know. It's quite the admission to make on a podcast, but to get into <laughs> it a little bit, since we were last with you, I don't know what day that was. Wednesday, Thursday, whatever it was when we did Tuesday? our... Tuesday? Maybe it was Tuesday. I think you're right, actually. Um, when we did our John Hammond emergency podcast, a lot has really changed since then, even, in terms of what the books are looking to do with that vacancy. Um, at that time, we were speaking under the assumption that, well, I mean, of course, Justin Zanuck's going to be the guy. How could he not be the guy? How could all of the things that have happened in the last two years have happened? And then all of a sudden they go, yeah, you might be the guy. But that's what happened. Mark Stein, uh, Adrian Wojnarowski both reported that the books were opening up their search, seeing who they could get. They've been, they've been rumored to have an interest in Cleveland Cavaliers GM David Griffin, although... I don't know how much there really is to buy into that, rather than just, you know, he needs some leverage to get his new deal, and the books are the only team left, right, without a GM at the moment. Everyone else is. Yeah, because Magic got, well, we obviously know about the Magic, and the Hawks Hawks just wrapped up theirs the other day. The Warriors. So, yeah. um, It's a powerful name, by the way. Schlank. (laughs) It is. It's like another name. Uh, we won't go down that road. I'm talking about Tresky. Oh. I'm not talking about Tresky, but it works just as well. 
what do you make of the fact that the books have opened this up? Does this make you feel any better? Are you feeling worse? I think we're we're not going to have to debate whether the optics of this are better or worse. I think the optics are not great at all. This is very chaotic to let your GM go and then be like, oh yeah, okay, he's gone, so let's open a search for a GM. But are you feeling better or worse because of this? Do you like the idea that they're going to make sure they've the right guy or you just kind of wish this was all maybe a little bit more thought through. Well, I find it curious if you've read any of the details of any report about this. It's kind of, I find it very contradictory that obviously there's an opening. They have to, they have to open up the search. They're doing part of my phrase here. They're doing their due diligence here, trying to find the best way to uh, set up a, a coherent uh, front office structure, I would say. Um, but the reasoning behind it and just the timing of it all, I feel is a little, I don't know, it, it doesn't add up to me. Because it's there's there, the explanations are for, they, they want to look for, you know, uh, taking this next step. Basically, they, they want to avoid doing what they did in 2015, where they were on, you know, had a good season, make a promising playoff push, even though it was only six games. But <laughs> they want to, they want everything to coalesce at this, in this point where they actually hit the next step instead of revert back and then have this kind of, you know, seesaw. Hmm. I won't, I won't refrain from making the sound effect. But it just still, like, it feels like, I, I just find it really odd, like, that it's being painted as this, like, they're willingly looking for a new direction, but the rug was also kind of pulled out from them at the same time. Like, like you can't have both ways. It, like, you're, they're making it sound like they're being proactive, where, frankly, it looks more reactive than anything. And I think that's what... Is just kind of odd to me about this. And plus, too, the I mean, you're the GM. You open it up when it's late May. Any person that is let go, or you know, any attractive candidates at this point, are already in have taken jobs, and you're gonna probably be taking people that have been out of the league for at least a year, or maybe. Maybe just were fired. I don't know. But, like, it's just, it's, I don't know. I understand, like, they want to make sure it's the right call. And obviously, as we talked about many times, this is a big step, especially in front of a big summer that you don't have much wiggle room in finding, you know, kind of di- where this direction go leads them is crucial, obviously. But I just, it's, it's just strange. Everything about this is very strange. I've been trying, and I'm in the process of writing a piece on this for the last few days. And I'm finding it really difficult just because there is literally so much to talk about on this. There are so many different angles, there's so many complications to it, and there is so much at stake. But I, one of the one of the few bits I've managed to kind of get together in my brain is something that you really alluded to there. And it's this idea of... 
if they planned to move on from Hammond, that's fine. We could say that, but this isn't. There is now no semblance of a plan because there is nothing under your control about having to undertake a search for a general manager. One, you don't know if the candidates you want are going to be available. Um, you don't know if they're going to be interested in taking your job. If not, you don't know if you're going to be able to do all of that in time for the draft, for free agency. It's a mess, to be honest. It really... Like, the results could turn out fine. But the process hasn't set itself up for that, you know? This isn't... This isn't the kind of decision-making process in terms of restructuring the front office that would seem likely to lend itself to that success. Um, could be completely coincidental, most likely is, but when we consider the rate that the books were doing workouts in the last few weeks, and we have ye we have now had zero workouts since John, Ham John Hammond is gone. Like, okay, we'll see if Monday that takes up and they just... Oh, they just coincidentally had this half a week, decided they weren't going to be looking at prospects, and oh, everything just matched up when the Magic wanted Hammond at that time, and he left, and that worked out. That doesn't seem likely, though. Um, In all likelihood, they've probably cancelled some workouts in the last few days, and it's instantly some stuff. We mentioned on the emergency podcasts where we don't know if Guys like Billy McKinney and Dave Babcock are going to stay. That could still be something that happens. I think week. they are. I think they are staying, or at least for at least for this year, because there was sure. some. Did you see? Did someone report something I missed? I'm trying to remember who it was. I think I. I, I could be just pulling this out of left field, but this wouldn't happen to come from a, an occasionally unreliable source, would it, Jordan? Um. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, let's go sometimes. Okay. Uh, well, look, it's still up in the air. That could maybe... They could still potentially end up moving on. And I think the thing that guys like that, well, we don't know exactly what their future is. What it kind of adds to is just this general sense of uncertainty that they really have created quite a long time ago about what the structure is in the front office and who's doing what. And I think that's that's something that whatever they do at the end of this process, they need to tackle. Because as it stands, I mean, Justin Zanuck is going to feel pretty undermined. He can't be feeling great if someone else comes in and it's, you know, it hasn't been talked through in a way that he would have expected. Personally, what I think they could have done, should have done is just appointed him as GM just straight out, made the decision say Justin Zanix or GM and we're going to continue to look at the structure of our front office which allows you to be business as usual no outward sense of panic and you can go about doing your kind of interview process behind the scenes and if you find the right guy and let's be honest, I think if they if they bring someone in, it's dirt. The way this ownership works, they're going to want it to be someone with either significant name value or a really proven track record. So if you're looking for a David Griffin, for example, if that did become possible, I mean, beyond that, I struggle to think of who who's out there. Maybe Hinky has name value? 
He certainly has main value. Well, look, if we want to put it as both of those guys, you can strike Hinky from it if you're of that disposition and just go with Griffin. But say if it's Griffin that you really like the sound of. I mean, Griffin wants to be top top dog in, a, in whatever front office. That's part of what the weight is in Cleveland. He wants to really have the kind of power that a team like the Bucks could give him. You could say to Zanuck, very honestly, look, you're a general manager. We're going to look. We may still bring in a president of basketball operations, but you are now in that general manager's job. And if they decide to go that route, you'd bring someone in as president of basketball operations. I think the important difference in something like that would be that sounds not too dissimilar from what we've just had. But they kind of broke through some walls with that when, say, we started to hear that Jason Kidd had influence a couple of years ago. Although that's not something that's been prevalent at the moment. And even since we we did all of our foreshadowing on the last podcast, uh, reports have come out that they have no intention of giving Jason Kidd any sort of front office role this time. They kind of blurred the lines between front office and coaching, and Kidd had influence beyond just his opinion when, you know, that wasn't his job. Then you have Zanuck as assistant GM, Hammond... I mean, a simpler kind of structure that's widely recognized and understood around the NBA is President of Basketball Operations General Manager. And I, I don't think they're going to let Zanuck go if they find David Griffin, unless this is completely the opposite of what Zanuck was promised and he walks himself at the end of it. So realistically, if they find someone other than him to come in, you're still going to have that two-tiered system. So, this is one of the things that keeps going on my head is, why not just appoint Zanuck as GM? Say, look, there may be further announcements to come, we're going to continue to analyse the structure of front office, and spare everyone this kind of sense of chaos. And be, in, be completely 100% certain that you have someone who has already been active in your process for the last season, who knows the direction you're going with all your scouting guys and your analytics guys in terms of draft prospects, who's familiar with your players who are hitting free agency this summer that you have decisions to make. And you already know you're well-equipped because the way they're going right now, well, there is room for, let's say they don't get someone through the draft and that kind of goes towards free agency and what Zanuck makes the pick and, uh, re-signs Monroe and re-signs Snell then someone comes in above him to make the decisions and it's not their pick and they no longer have cap space because that's where the books are going to be what is the point of that what is the point of that job at that stage really I mean a lot of the GM's work has been done until the team starts to play games again and you're seeing well okay how's this working do we need to make trades what do we need to you know so there's an element of it for me where I feel the the way that it's being handled is just really bad. There's ways to effectively do what it seems like they want to do. And they've just made a mess of it really. Yeah. And you're not even with the Zanuck, uh, part of this, you're not even mentioning the whole, his contract where he's being paid as like a, like a decision maker or like a GM basically. Uh, I know, uh, dunked on went over, it's the other day when I think the news broke out. Was that maybe Wednesday or maybe not Tuesday's edition, but Wednesday they talked about it. So like that. And I think maybe that's part of just, you know, bringing him over for a unique situation, knowing that their GM uh, 
was our position was already filled, but that also could say that they were, you know, paying for this for an eventual succession, even though that's being quashed. I don't know. Uh, yeah, but again, I think just on that, because people have seen it as well, Mark Stein has said, uh, contrary to previous reports, he was never a GM in waiting. I mean, that was reported by Adrian Wojnarowski, the vertical, that was also reported by Charles Gardner, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and I don't believe that that wasn't the case, because very simply, why do the Jazz let him leave? You know, why does he want to leave the Jazz? There's, there's literally no reason for him to want to leave the Jazz to come to the books, if he's not on the path to the big job that he feels maybe isn't going to be up for grabs in Utah anytime soon. So why does all of that happen? Why does he come here if not for... I don't think you kind of throw everything in here and kind of move away from where you were for, you know, oh, well, a year from now, we're going to open the job up, and if you're here, maybe you have a head start, maybe you don't. That's a that's a weird thing that no one is going to buy into. That's not going to give Zanuck any sort of trust in the organizational process here. So there has to be something more that convinced him. As you, as you mentioned, I mean, if he's being paid that kind of money, even without saying a lot of it, you're sort of going, oh, okay. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You're paying me the GF money. Okay, or whatever. You know, it's a... That's a... I find that element of it strange, too, to kind of think of, well, maybe... Maybe there, there wasn't that agreement in place. Well, then why was he there? And why did the books do it? Why did they kind of undercut everything? They had gone quite a long time without an assistant GM. Um, I'm right in thinking, didn't they go a full season? Yeah, they didn't have one in 15 or 16. So After uh, David Morrow, right? Yes. Moreway, Moreway, sorry. Moreway. Yeah. Um, and that was another one where he just wasn't renewed kind of out of the blue, and he was a Hammond guy. It's just weird because I think wh- what this is setting up for me is that I just think Zanuck is likely just to retain the GM position and whoever they find for president of basketball operations, whoever that is, I don't know. They're just setting up a very similar plan, or not plan, but just how everything was before, where these guys were uh, – Kid was hired before Zanuck was hired. Zanuck was hired before whoever they're going to hire for president of basketball operations. And it's going to create this kind of weird cloud of, again, like the same, like, I, I, I don't know. I just find it very troubling is not the r- right word, but it's like, I just, I think they're making the same old mistakes and it's, I don't, I don't know. It's not promising. As in, if you're going to kind of change one, you might as well clear house and let your new people come in and get the people they want in place. Well, that's the thing. Like, I know Woj's report had it the other day where they're talking about, you know, leadership. And I'm just thinking, like, that there's a (laughs) – without going into the whole kid issue, but if you're really evaluating leadership, how does that not – like, how do you not, like, draw the line – how do you draw the line just to the front office part of it? Don't I, I you also that, right? Because the thing I found hilarious about that is just this thing that um, there's been a really strong sentiment of books where I guess this is what happens when Hammond leaves and he's with someone else, and you're basically doing your best. Oh well, fine. I mean, if 
He's not here anymore, <laughs> so he was never that good to begin with. Never, yeah. Uh, but I, I love when, say, win totals are thrown out during his time oh, or playoffs, God. as if... The actual as if, context. But as if that doesn't come down to the coach. Like, a GM can do a really, really good job, and if they have a bad coach or things don't go quite that way, that's one thing. Obviously, there's a lot more to context of that. But I feel just pinning uh, playoff trips on a GM is a very, very... A very, very tricky situation. The other part of Hammond's legacy that will never be talked about is, like a lot of his predecessors, he was the general manager of the team and he was working under Herb Cole, who every decision he wanted to make had to go to Herb Cole, had to be to his liking. The yeah. only, like, if we really are talking about this, the only way, like, the only time he got his way where he, that's a horrible way to phrase it, but the only way where or only, like, year where he, like, it felt like he had, you know, full control, say, of how to, you know, the direction of the team for that season was the year that they bottomed out in 13-14, and they went to the lottery. They said enough is enough with all the injuries. That is true. Like, that – because he had to – he kept talking about – um uh, after Herb Cole, maybe he was, like, right before with the ownership change, you know, trying to serve two masters – and that was basically the same thing with the new ownership. Like that's the thing. Like the I just I think he kind of got his own way a little bit more. Love, but you're right. It's close to that. I think the transitional phase, we'll call it, when the, the when the ownership just took over in that summer, and Herb Cole was just gone. Kid had just arrived. I, I think that was very much kind of Hammond's deal. But that was also, yeah, that's true. That was also the summer where you the second overall pick, and I mean, it's not like you. You know, there are a lot of obvious things there for you to do. You don't have to overthink that necessarily to be like, okay, I mean, his decisions really did come down to, am I taking, okay, Wiggins is gone, are we taking Parker or Embiid? Like, it, there, wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot there to kind of work through, but I think he had that one. I think maybe he had last summer. Because I really... Yeah, probably. I think, I, I think I, I, I'm just saying, like, I feel like... It, I don't know. I think it's kid, just, did no, kid did himself no favors. I think, like, if we're to, this is all, of course, is a speculation. It's, it's been denied officially by, by the ownership on multiple occasions. But if we look at the direction the books took for the one year where it was rumored that you know Jason Kidd had a very very strong voice in that room, uh, we've got the Rashad Vaughn pick. It it was just it was a strange summer generally. There was a lot of different moves going on and if you compare it to last year they're very very different mm -hmm. that's kind yeah. of a side note in getting back into Hammond where where I'd come on that though is I don't again I don't think the problem is having there is a way to make it work in having the same sort of situation as you had before but you've just got to very clearly define the roles so people are happy in their roles so that you don't have a John Hammond to, you're here going, oh, John's going to be a consultant in a year from now. And he's like, well, no, I would like to still be a GM, so I'm going to Orlando. You know, you don't want that situation. So it just comes with kind of knowing what you're doing and really thinking it through in advance where it's like, okay, Justin, you're coming in. You're going to be a general manager. We will bring someone else into that decision-making process with you, just so you're aware. But you are going to be a key part of that then there's no surprises for him. Whether 
say if they do, if the Cavs can't come to a deal with David Griffin, though, and he sits down to talk with the Bucks, whether he wants Justin Zanuck around, he might say, okay, well, if I'm president of basketball operations, I'm fine with the GM, but I'd like this guy. Uh, whether he wants Jason Kidd around. They're all unknowns right now that make it a very kind of, very tricky spot. And I think it's important, and again, for people who are just like, oh, well, you know what? Hammond didn't do that much. It's good. We're moving on. They, they, they've got to do something to get to the next level. They've got to be a better team. Uh, this is for, for, I guess, the segment of the fan base out there who are just like, yeah, we need the guy who's going to come in this summer and trade Henson, Delhi, and Telly. Uh, this is the most important, the busiest summer the Books Run Office have had maybe ever. Because not only do they have to worry about their own business in terms of the draft, in terms of everything they've come up in free agency, and how they're really going to lock themselves into something for a few years. They have a whole other franchise. They're G League, as I'm starting to get around to calling it, affiliate in, in Fox Valley, which, you know, you've got to... That's going to be very rushed as well, because whoever comes in as your GM, whoever's running the show with the main team, and we've talked about this in terms of coaching before, like, you've got to set a culture with the main team that you can then mirror in your minor league affiliate you don't want one to be different to the other and right now we don't know what they're going to look like in the main team and it's at a point where they really need to be getting some personnel into kind of front office jobs and very soon players for the team in Oshkosh as well there's a lot going on they don't have a lot of time to resolve it and David Griffin again I mean, we can. We only gonna say him because he's the only person who you'd say logically, okay, well, yeah. I mean, if he becomes available, it would make sense they'd be interested. And um, that there's been any kind of mention of. I don't know if you've seen anyone else yet. I haven't seen a name mentioned in terms of this search. No. So, say it's David Griffin. The Cavs can basically stop anyone from talking with him until draft week. It's like, what, you do a deal then and it's just complete madness? He's got a week to make decisions on as much as he'll be familiar with Greg Monroe and Tony Snell. Um, how much of their season has he really paid attention to? You know, there's, there's a lot going on. It's pretty nervy times. Um, if you're a books fan, I think a lot of people who would openly say, you know, I, I'm not really that buttered or I'm not that interested in the, the management dynamics. It's all about the players. Uh, it might be time to start paying attention to the management side of things because this could have a major impact on everything else. I haven't even mentioned, say, Jabari's extension. New guy comes in. Does he have a feel for who Jabari is as a person? Does he trust in the recovery the way maybe they would have before? Does it mean that Someone new would extend them where the previous regime wouldn't have, or vice versa. Tense times lie ahead. Well, we get on to wrapping up our player segment of our position-by-position position series, Jordan. Yes. Let's, let's do it. So, this week, we're here to talk about centers. So long, one of one of the two positions that we would regularly be found talking about, you know, 
the books need to find an answer at centre. Who is the book centre of the future? We probably have some more clarity on that right now. Uh, but let's not pretend there's still not plenty of uncertainty about the direction of the team at that position. As we've already kind of mentioned in some of the GM talk, Greg Monroe can opt out into free agency and after probably the best season of his career and a season where he really proved himself to be a lot of what the books need, particularly if Ton Maker is their first option at that position, they have decisions to make there. Ton Maker's own emergence gives hope that, okay, maybe he's the starter, maybe he's the guy who has the skill set that will mesh nicely with the rest of our core, has the right kind of personality and character to, to do that too. He's still at a very early stage of his career and, you know, we're all in position to believe the development is coming from what we've seen in him as a rookie. It still has to actually happen though. Beyond that, we have John Henson, who had the most John Henson-y of John Henson seasons. Mm -hmm. And... Spencer Hawes, who actually managed to come in and make an impact late in the year and also has the option to opt in to a player option for next year. A lot going on there. Let's start off, though, with the man who finished the season as the team starter in the middle, Tonmaker. I know it's hard to kind of put you back in this spot, but prior to the season, what would you have... What would you put as a kind of over-under for Tom Maker's minutes? He played 562 total minutes in the regular season. I'm trying to remember what I said. Um, I mean, he played He played in 57 regular season games. So he, he averaged just below 10 minutes per game. 9.9 .9 minutes per game uh, was his number. So... I think that would have seemed a little bit absurd to begin with. Yeah, but you have to remember, too, we're also kind of factoring in Milton's injury and expectations of the season. I felt like like it was one of those like bit, like things where, you know, uh, similar to how they structured the season where he does have much of a role early on and then as the season goes on, with the Bucks, you know, losing many games. This is my expectation. I don't, I don't think that was all about Middleton's injury either, though. Obviously, they became more experimental through that period of time. But let's remember, if we're talking about why he got very little minutes earlier on, Miles Plumlee started the year as the starting center is, of the guy yeah. he committed all the money to. Like, that's probably as big a factor as any to why he only played 57 games rather than, say, 70-plus games. That's true. Yeah, I probably honestly, I think I said eight to ten minutes, maybe a little bit more. Maybe high. I think I, maybe I said like higher minutes, but maybe not as much game games played. I don't know. Somewhere there. Um, but yeah, either way, I mean, uh, it's hard not because obviously the lot like you know when we're talking about Thon, it's the last thing we remember is his playoff performance, and that was. A much more expanded role uh, that he had at any point this season, say for like a game or two. Um, so, yeah. So, do you feel it was kind of pretty close to the kind of role you expected, but maybe greater impact? 
you were you were expecting him to get some minutes. If you're saying eight to eight to ten, I'm not sure if I. I'd have to. I'd probably if I went back and checked the tapes, I'd be contradicting myself right now. But I don't know if I expected eight to ten minutes a game at any point. I I know for certain what I didn't expect was the impact that he managed to have yeah. later in the year, uh, which is I guess really what it's all about. For me, he, he probably played more than I expected, and as a result, um, and also probably part of the reason why that was was because he managed to do things when he was out on the floor. You mentioned the playoffs, and the playoffs are maybe the best example because at that point we'd already seen him kind of kind of honing in some of the areas that have been problems for him earlier in the year uh, for example if you think when they first started to kind of give him minutes even and we talk about his per game minutes numbers like we don't factor in that ton was coming in and picking up like three thousand two minutes and then never being seen again at the early stages when he came in where then by the time you get to the playoffs i mean he's playing against the uh, a really good team in the Raptors and in just under 20 minutes per game he was only having three personal fouls there was a lot of kind of subtle ways he improved as the season went on but if we were to go from not even I guess what we thought Tom Maker was last summer what you saw him as when he did come into the team and start to play what was the biggest thing that stands out to you as an improvement from that point to the playoffs and to where we are now where we're imagining what kind of role and what kind of impact he can have next season i think it was just frankly he wasn't this kind of one note like it felt like every good game that he had was basically just him hitting threes early on and as the season wore on and especially when the bucks hit their stride of you know early or basically about the march um you know, he wasn't shooting. If I remember correctly, he didn't have the greatest shooting percentages, at least from three. Yeah, he shot 16.7% from three in April, 26.7% from three in March. Um, and so as that was kind of sliding down, he still surprised in other ways where it just felt like he was scoring like off the cuts, um, just more awareness of how to, you know, be effective offensively. And just defensively, just being I, I, like I, obviously the the playoffs were probably the be- best you know representation of the player that Thon could be, especially defensively. But it felt like he was just more in tune with kind of the timing of everything, especially you know given how the defense is played. That is such a huge thing for the Bucks, and especially a guy like Thon who. He is kind of this considered the last line of defense, and if he makes you know right rotations, all that stuff, that stuff will uh, you know be key. Uh, I just felt like you know the stuff that we saw from him the last two months or the last month and a half playoffs included. I mean, I didn't expect to see it this soon. I didn't. Maybe there are some things I didn't expect to see at all, frankly. Um, but I just felt like there was more, just an old like a diverse overall package of what he could bring to the table, which was, you know, incredibly thrilling to see. With rookies, there's always this kind of, um, this notion of, you know, when the game slows down for them, what they're going to be able to do. And I think that's even more important than you think of a player like Ton, who plays at breakneck speed. So, you know, 
Um, with the way he moves and if he's still adjusting to everything, that's one hell of a jump to make, particularly considering he never played college basketball either. There's a lot to lot to take in here, but by the playoffs, it really did feel like things were starting to, to slow down. And you mentioned that, I guess, what he was able to do varied. Um, he definitely became a, a more intelligent defender where maybe shot blocking and three-point shooting were there kind of from the offset. And there are things that he was... He was drafted on um, the idea of him being able to do those things. Of course, you want him to deliver on both of those, but it was almost more exciting seeing him do other things, um, even defensively, just being a smart defender, being able to switch out onto guys and kind of being a leader on that end of the floor. Uh, offensively, like one element for me that I think just really highlights how he just kind of got it later on. The adjustment just seemed to be nearly there. Was his passing, and um, he started to break out these incredible passes in the playoffs. Which, I mean, earlier in the year, he at times looked like he had Bismack Biombo hands, and all of a sudden he's whipping like cross court passes over people's heads to like Tony Snell for trees. If you look at per thirty six minutes, he averaged in the regular season one point five assists, which is really nothing. Playoffs, 3.7 assists per 36 minutes. Two assists per game in just under 20 minutes of play. Like, that's a real thing. He's passing. He's finding teammates for baskets. He just looks really well-rounded. And I feel like some of the strength concerns, they're obviously still a factor, and teams will always look to exploit them. He's He's already finding ways to kind of navigate them and I think for his career like he's going to always be on the skinny side his frame is never going to be a big frame so there's always going to be this idea of oh we'll put a big guy on him Ton already knows how to deal with a lot of that whether that's like um his tip out rebounds that he was starting to get a real handle on late in the year where he said both himself and the coaching staff had discussed about you know he's not able to kind of hold position against a lot of those guys but what he is able to do is use his length use his, I guess, advantage in terms of explosiveness and athleticism to get up above those guys and direct it back to a teammate rather than securing it himself. There's a lot of that that he's already kind of figuring out, and that that's very, very exciting. What do you feel is next for Ton? I'm not, I'm not talking specifically in terms of numbers. I don't want to get into this, you know, oh, when is Ton, you know, because maybe it's just particularly tiresome because we've been through this with Yanis and everything, but this talk of, oh, is Ton going to take a leap at some point, or what does Ton's leap look like? I'm not particularly interested in all of that, but just, like, do you think, for a start, his playoff play is something that's sustainable moving forward, as in regular season next year? Can we see him do that variety of things with that intensity, with that level of consistency as a base, is that something there that we can rely on? Um, I don't know exactly just because I think a lot of it just comes down to if the Bucks have Greg Monroe in a backup role or, you know, resign him, whatever. Um, but I don't know. Like I, I, I think a lot of it just kind of falls on how, how much do they want to kind of throw at him, what he can handle, how do they – involve him for different, you know, plays uh, offensively. Just I, I think it's just more of kind of not letting it 
getting too ahead of themselves. And I, that's, you know, judging from what we saw from Giannis and guys like Aaron Jabari, just how they develop, how we've seen recent, you know, the developments of, you know, the Bucks young players. Like, I don't think that's much of a concern at all. But for a guy like Thon, who obviously has, as you said before, his journey to uh, the Bucks is so unique and it's got to be handled in a specific way just because, you know, this is his first taste of any type of basketball like that. He obviously didn't go to college and stuff like that. So um, I don't know. I, 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 I don't want it to be like this baseline of, because we've seen how playoff performances can uh, set out uh, new expectations. With a, with a player we'll get to later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, specifically a big man. Um, but, uh, so I don't know. I, I don't know what, I mean, sure. You want it, you want it to see a replicate. You want to have a go- jumping off point for next year. But again, <laughs> that's just so crazy. He was a rookie. This is his first year. It's his first time ever going to playing basketball is with these kind of stakes. And he plays the way that he did. It's, it's just insane. <laughs> it's really just crazy. Uh, I feel it's a lock that he comes back a lot better this year because of his work ethic, because of how much he will have gotten out of that experience. He's going to put everything into this summer. He's going to come back better. And I think where it's going to come down to is how the books manage his role, his minutes, and if they can continue to find ways to get the best out of him. And kind of if things aren't going well for him, if he needs, you know, whether it's he needs to pull from the starting lineup for a few games or he needs his minutes reduced here or there, whatever that happens to be, like to do that and to manage it and to manage him. Like some of the standouts with, with Ton and maybe the most exciting elements of it. It's the kind of thing that when you read like that great profile Howard Beck did during the season and he talks about like wanting multiple MVPs and defensive player of the year and all. That sounds, that sounds great. But it's when you kind of see the the improvements he's able to make already, but then you also see him on the court kind of communicating with his veteran players or on the bench and he's like almost calling out defensive assignments and making sure everyone's in position, everyone's locked in. They're the things that for me really make me excited and just say, well, you know, maybe this just isn't your average, your average rookie, your average kind of, high potential prospect his character is really giving him an advantage there and he seems to have all the kind of the more intangible ingredients to give him every chance of putting his skills together and getting the best out of whatever his career is going to be so for me i guess that that leaves me excited as a baseline things that are important for for next year as much as it was kind of enjoyable to see uh a more varied output from you want to see like overall the season he shot 37.8% from three point range which was excellent you want to see something similar to that again like he cooled off the end of the season that's fine and um, he doesn't have to shoot that every single month but you want to just know that overall for the season he's going to average out upwards of 37 to 40% and be the kind of the real three point threat you want him to be I 
want to see the Bucks kind of continue to learn and experiment with how they use him defensively. And how the likes of him and Yanis can have these moments where, you know, they are almost like free safeties. And if you're going to play an ultra-aggressive defensive scheme, which at least the current Bucks uh, head coach likes to do, they're the kind of players you can do it with, but there's probably smarter ways to put it all together and different ways you can experiment with that still, and I'd like to see them do that. You'd have to think that if they're now thinking, oh, well, Tom's a starter. I mean, he started through the kind of final stretch of the regular season into the playoffs. He's starting next year. That even if the defense stays the same, there's going to be much more focus on terms of how they can weaponize Tom Maker as a part of that system. That's going to be a different look, and I, I genuinely think he's got the, the kind of um, work ethic and the abilities to really disrupt in that sense he's far from a lockdown defender yet because he's still he's still young and he still kind of wants to make every big play so he will be out of position at times but as you continue to kind of teach him how to hone that in there are definitely ways where you know that's a big weapon that you can use we saw that against the raptors where demar Derozan and kyle lowry all of a sudden were you know almost afraid to go to the rim at times that series that's, I don't know. I don't know how many guys can do that. I don't know even how many guys. And the books haven't been short on kind of really good shot blockers in recent years. Like, for whatever else, John Henson could block a shot. Larry Sanders could block shots. Yanis can block shots even, um, whether it's from the tree or the This is totally different. It right. was in a different it's, way. It's a, it's a very different way. It just feels like none of those guys. Yanis at times, I think Yanis can get in guys heads when they're moving in transition and they feel like okay he's coming behind them tom will have elements of that but there's just more to it as well um maybe maybe teams will figure something out but right now i just don't think they know you know how to avoid this because he's he's not your stereotypical nba big moving on from tom although tom finished years the starter and um, there's no real questions over who was really the I guess the the number one big for the books over the course of the season, that was Greg Monroe. After, you know, all the confusion of will he start, um, his own comments about not starting, going back to media day, and really what had just been a disastrous first season with the books. Greg Monroe played 81 games, he didn't start a single game, and he probably applied himself better than he ever has in his career. Um, a career high in points per 36. Pretty close, not not quite, but a really good season in terms of rebounding. Um, second best season of his career in assists per 36. Career high in steals per 36. Uh, second best season in blocks per 36. His second most efficient shooting season from the field. And his best... No, his second best free throw shooting season ever. Um, Just really positives across the board. And the numbers don't even do it justice for Greg Monroe because it was more just this extra dimension to his play that came in kind of hustle plays or making the right plays on offense that really transformed things. 
we I guess we've got to talk about his contract more than anything before we even get into, you know, how can we talk about Greg Monroe next season or how we equate this <laughs> season to next season before we decide whether he's going to be there. Where are you at right now on this? What do you think Greg Monroe is going to look to do? Do you think he opts in? Do you think he opts out? I think I feel confident the books want him back, but then how confident can you feel on anything right now when you don't know who's going to be making the decisions? Yeah. Um. Uh, sorry, but just before that even, something we haven't talked about in this, but I mean... Does, does he want to? Would this, he opt in but does with this, all the changes? Yeah. Does this uncertainty impact how Greg Monroe thinks? How Tony Snell thinks? How Miles Plumley thinks? Because you know, if we've got a good thing going, Miles this Plumlee. guy. Did I say Miles Plumley? I meant Spencer Hawes. <laughs> um, Michael Beasley. I meant Spencer Hawes. I just meant you know that kind of meaningless, meaningless center over there who the books are bound to give away money oh. to. Um, <laughs> But like those guys had to hit free agency, do they? Do they just think twice and be like, "Oh, John Hammond, he was the guy who brought me here," or he was the guy who was vocal in the media saying they want me back next year? Maybe that has an effect. I don't. I don't need to really put that to you right now. Uh, the main question for you. I don't want to give you too much to worry about because I know you you get flustered from time to time, Jordan. Where are you at? on Greg Monroe's decision? What are you expecting him to do? Well, before I get flustered, uh, I think those are very valid reasons to kind of, it, it only complicates an already complicated decision. You know, obviously the money that for Monroe, I think, what is it? Eight, closer to $18 million player option, something like that. Um, that's very good money, but obviously he would just go right back into you know free agency waters, so to speak, next season. And who's to say is he going to have a similar season where he looks uh, he's on a liability defensively. He's effective on that end. Uh, you know he's a very well-rounded offensive player. Aside from you know not being able to shoot threes or you know stretch out his shot, even though he does have that little elbow jumper. Um, and just the expectations of his role. I, I just think as far as – I think this kind of – this year really – like I, from our perspective, and I don't, maybe he feels differently. Who knows how he truly feels about it. But he found great success as a starter – or not a starter, uh, <laughs> six man off the bench, so to speak, uh, the kind of this newfound – uh, you know, role that a lot of big men like Monroe are being pigeonholed at this point. And I feel like that maybe he wants something more, maybe he doesn't, I don't know, but there's something to work off of, at least from that perspective. And even though it is technically a, a quote unquote demotion, like you said, he was playing starter level level minutes. He only missed one game despite the whole weird Monroe so I got to start the year. Um I mean so you can take it for what it is, but he still played starter level minutes. Really, he closed out most games more often than not, uh, and you know whatever. Um, uh, so I don't know. I don't know. Like I just think, I, I ultimately I just find it for him. Do you really want to take a chance of not being able to, 
you know, come off of this type of season that it is. And there, there's just so many different, different uh, factors into this decision where it's obviously at a personal level, like trying to replicate what he did this year, you know, uh, and coming off a season like that. Obviously, like you said, the GM situation, another factor in all this is just the, <laughs> the crazy how, uh, you know, saturated the big man market is. And with, you know, as we are looking at the draft, looking at how many more big men that kind of are in this weird limbo of development and what they could do, like it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and teams are giving more money away. And it's just such a weird situation how like you want to, you come to that decision. But anyway, um, I don't know. I, I, I think he ultimately opts out because I just don't see him. I just see him thinking, I, look at what I did this year. I, if I have any little like drawback next year, who's to say you got to strike when the iron's hot, basically. So that's all. I think that's where I think that's where what what I think is going to happen. Anyways. Yeah, it's hard to know whether he does it, but I, if it was me, I'd be opting out and getting my years locked in because this is about with the security of years. It's about locking your money longer term. Take it. Take even the element of if he regresses defensively or whatever. Take that out of it, because the role he has is one that um kind of inherently has some uncertainty attached to it. Because what if Tom Maker did break out next year? You yeah. Know, what if What if Tom did break out and he showed so much more and all of a sudden, I mean, he's already the starter and the books are like, you know, we've got to play Tom twenty five, twenty six minutes a game. So then you've got less minutes for Monroe. He's got less opportunity to showcase himself. He's opting out. At that point, the books are going, eh, you know, we don't really need him. Um, or we, we certainly can't afford to pay what it would what it would cost to bring him back. Um, he's also got the issue of, you know, if Snell got re-signed this summer and things already get kind of tight, things would be super tight by next summer. If Jabari's extension hasn't been done, Jabari could well be top priority for the books next summer. And even if he really likes it in Milwaukee, by waiting another year, might oh, travel. Of, he might kind of lose his chance to be around here. They just may not be able to do it very easily. So he can kind of get locked in ahead of the curve and, you know. every Everything everything has come, like gotten to this point where it's it's about him. Where, like you said, like just because of how everything has changed, you know, with Jabari's injury, that kind of is, maybe it's on the back uh, burner, who knows, but with Thon being where he is right now, like, it's just, it's so, it, it just feels like everything is just pointed to him to say, like, this is the last chance at, like, me getting kind of what I want instead of other things dictating my future. You know what I mean? Like, that just, it just makes so much sense from his perspective to still kind of stick to what he thought of when he came to Milwaukee two years ago. Yeah, and and obviously the $18 million is a lot of money, but, I mean, if the books wanted to give him three years 45 or four years 60, I mean, what's the, you're losing out in $3 million one year to know that you've got two more years of $15 million each coming or whatever that is. Um, at a point where he is starting to get older, he's not there yet, but by definitely by the end of his next contract, you know. He'll be 27 on June 4th. Happy birthday, GKM. 
June 4th, is that, that will be next week as we record. They'll have to, maybe Jordan could compose a special song for Greg Monroe. A bigger cake. I, I meant the song you could perform on the podcast. Oh. I'll leave that one with you. Uh, well, that's what, that's what I mean by making a song. I'll bake a cake. Okay. If I knew you were coming, I'd bake a cake. There you go. But getting on in years, and particularly with a player of his type, they're not aging particularly well in the NBA right now. It's It really is with him. It's about getting the most money for the longest period of time is what you want to do. And you're right. I mean, this is the year where he can kind of lay what he is and everything out there on the table and say, look, you know what I bring. This is it. Let's talk and see what we can do. Next year, it really could be the books being like, oh, well, Ton's here and uh, we've got Jabari's contract here and, you know, you didn't have as good a year as you had before. And I think if he knows there's interests from the books and if he wants to stay in Milwaukee, this is his best chance to opt out and get that next deal. And if it would seem that it is, that that would be the case. But then again, as you said, we don't know how he really feels and how much of it was, okay, I'm just going to get on with it for this year so that I can get out of here and find somewhere where I can start again. Like, that's, <laughs> that's entirely possible and we wouldn't know about it. He might have just said, you know what? If I want to get out of here and get paid good money, I've got to just embrace my role and prove that I'm still the guy I think I am. It's possible. If he comes back next year, are you buying into him repeating these things? Like, we're talking about oh, the possibility of regression. Would you be leaning towards, you know, the defense isn't quite as good as we saw this year? Maybe the effort isn't quite as good as we saw this year? Like, is it more than just a possibility we feel, well, you know, if you're Greg Monroe, get that next deal done now because that might just not be something you can do another year. Yeah, I kind of, I, I feel like there's going to be some regression <laughs> in some ways, maybe just not just just a effort level, but I think teams will kind of become more familiar with just how he is used defensively. Just, again, even as good of a defensive season as it was and how surprising it was, there's ways to kind of go combat his effectiveness because it is kind of limited to one area. Like he's not like a rib protector. He's just really good with his hands and just kind of making sure his hands get on the ball in some ways and stuff like that. So I just think it, it might not be just on Monroe's like an effort level problem. I just think teams will probably, you know, learn how to go about or go around that kind of thing. So yeah, I, I, I just think, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> Jordan, you I never said, know. Already... We know that much. We know you never know. Um, yeah. You made that clear. I, I think you're right on that, though, but not just in the defense. Um, and I, I think he probably will regress, but I don't think very much. I think like I can buy into a very similar version of Greg Monroe being the thing. But I think something even offensively, like being able to have an kind of, you know, an equatable impact on offense to what you would expect of him as a starter. Obviously, lesser minutes, his points drop, but, you know, coming out with the kind of same same number of points um, when you look at, say, his points for 36 or anything like that, that was impressive. But a big part of that came in, say, the chemistry he built up with Brogdon and the way they ran plays together and kind of their own preferences. That's definitely something that next year would be game-planned 
playoff position because they're going to be much more prepared for Malcolm Brogdon and they're going to know how Monroe and Brogdon like to work. Like that's, that isn't a secret anymore. Everyone knows that Greg Monroe and Malcolm Brogdon have got good chemistry and like to do things together. So next year, if you're going to play the books, you're going to be saying, okay, when we get to the second unit, watch out for kind of how Brogdon and Monroe operate their own kind of two-man game. Uh, Brogdon looking to cut and Monroe looking to be the passer. You know, all of those things are going to be kind of picked up on by a lot of teams next year. So he's going to have to kind of reinvent himself again, which, I mean, look, this is just the NBA. This is what everyone has to do year on year. Teams are going to adjust. If you have a really good year and you hurt teams, the next year they're going to be, okay, this is, this is what he likes to do. This is what he doesn't like. We're going to force him into this. You've got to find something new. I don't think he's any different in that sense. I'm I'm buying it. I'm buying Greg Monroe. I think he can do that. Um, there might be some regression just because this was a really excellent year for that role. But I think he could still be about the same kind of guy. Who knows? Maybe he could be better. I think this is kind of... We're roughly in the kind of area where for the next few years he should be able to perform at. Maybe there's a better year to come. Maybe there's a year where he can have like, say, 14 and 7 off the bench or something, and he really kind of pushes himself into a real six-man discussion. Who knows? Um, I like what they've got working with Greg Monroe in that, that role. Whether he really likes being in that role, though, I mean, that's what we're going to find out when he hits free agency. If he hits free agency. Yeah. I think, too, to kind of put a note or finishing touch on this part. I just think maybe it's just the context of say if he has a, a season more in the vein of his first season with the Bucks, but the team is roughly, you know, a few games better than where they were this year. I think it's just, it's a lot of it just will probably be on, on you know, in terms of context. You know what I mean? Like he, for all the folks that we had that year for him specifically, it still wasn't like – that out of the ordinary from what he did before. It was bad. I, it, it was. I bet he was. No, I you're he right. Was good, was, but I'm just saying, like, yeah, you know, you're on right. An individual level. And there was definitely there was elements of, um, I think he had losing habits from being on a losing team for a long time, and now he's finally yep. had a chance to learn something different. So yeah, you're. It wasn't out of the ordinary from what Greg Monroe was up until that point, but it wasn't great. Um, not yeah. much could be said. Yeah, be interested to see what happens with Greg Monroe, what sort of Greg Monroe we see next year, whether it's in Milwaukee or maybe elsewhere. Um, that could be one. I don't know how I feel. I don't. Maybe that says a lot that I've reached a point where I don't like the idea of seeing Greg Monroe in another team's jersey next year. Like, that's uh, definitely one of many things that I wouldn't have predicted myself saying 12 months ago. Here we are. I guess what a lot of people might have predicted 12 months ago, though, was for John Henson to have an inconsistent season where he gets some opportunities as a starter, doesn't take full advantage of them, has some injuries, misses some games, basically kind of goes through every different kind of role he can have within the rotation, from he's the starter to the DNP guy, and we're kind of still as uncertain as ever. This is a really difficult one at this point because I don't think all books fans think this. I think most books fans probably would disagree with this, but I do still think that you know John Henson, John Henson has some things going for him. He definitely does have some talent. He can be utilized in some ways, 
but from the book's point of view, it's probably time to have given up on that and be like, okay, well, you know, maybe a change of scenery is good for him. Uh, maybe it's good for us. Like, where are you on this? Are we seeing a different Henson next year if Henson's still around? Is it just way too far to have any hope of that? Particularly, I, I think now maybe a bigger issue is if Monroe does come back. I mean, there isn't a spot for him. It's it's Ton as the starter, and Monroe is taking most of your bench minutes. And a kid didn't like playing three centers this year. That's not going to change next year, particularly if he's got two guys who are good in their roles, which uh, Maker and Monroe at least promise to be. What are we doing here? You know, let's let's bring the Rashad Vaughn perspective to this. What are we doing here with John Henderson, Jordan? Um, <laughs> I don't. I mean, I've 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 always been a believer in what John Henson could do. The idea of John Henson, it's I see it. Uh. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> that idea is that it's on paper. It's not a real thing. Um, it's not of substance or anything like that. Uh, and like you said, obviously, some of that is not his own doing. Some of that is just Jay's kid enacted a rule this year where he likes playing two bigs. <laughs> uh, uh, so he was kind of, when he was out of the rotation, he was out of the rotation. Um, but I think a lot of it is just on his own doing. I just think he's too inconsistent. I think for the kind of gifted shot blocker he could be, I don't think he's very good with his timing. I think he just, he's just not, it's not all clicking for him for whatever reason. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty much, he is who he is at this point. I think, like you said, I think at this point he would be, it would be best for him to move on. Uh, finding a taker for that, that is going to be a different <laughs> discussion. But again, I know, I, again, I with the whole Hammond uh, change this past week, I, I've seen a lot of his, his contract has come up as a big bugaboo uh, for, you know, negative for Hammond. And I can't defend that, obviously. Henson has not lived up to that contract. But you have to remember, it's still an old money contract. Contracts that are going to be signed this year are going to be for a guy like Henson in in terms of skill level and in terms of role and all that stuff. It's going to be higher than what his his contract is right now, and also that alone also declining in value. Oh, exactly. Also declining in value. So it it may not be a great great contract in terms of just him, you know, living up to it or kind of playing to the skill level and all that stuff. But it's still a somewhat attractive contract to take on if you're if you are thinking about trading for John Henson. Uh the Bucks might have to swing that deal a little bit more um because of you know teams wanting to trade for John Henson. But we have to remember that I mean they they traded Miles Plumley's contract and that was far from a desirable contract. Maybe that's just a one case scenario where I don't know what the Hornets were thinking on that, really. But yeah, they should have—they should have asked for Henson. Let's, let's be real. Honestly, yeah, exactly. That is why true. didn't they ask for Henson? That's completely insane. I don't know, but and I mean Henson. Uh, 
Like, Henson is a North Carolina native. Went to UNC. Why didn't they ask for Henson? I'm not complaining. And as much as Bucks fans want Henson gone, if Plumley was still here and Henson wasn't, you you would feel differently about that. I mean, if if you're going to move one of those two guys, they definitely move the right one. But that is an interesting thing I hadn't thought of before. Why did the Hornets not want Henson? Yeah, I I, I don't know. I <laughs> I think I think Henson's deal is very. I've been through this before, and we've we've often got questions of, do the books have to send a first and something? No, they don't. I still don't think they do. There's there's going to be a team out there. You, what you want is. I don't know. I haven't thought about it recently. I'd have to have a look and see. But there's going to be some team who, you know, they need rim protection. They have some sort of piece that they're not sold on. And you're going to have this mutual thing of the books being like, well, that guy could help us and you don't want him. And Henson could help you and we don't want him. And it will just work out. And there's like Henson is a very low risk gamble for any team to take on. Um, unless you're a team who's like right on the precipice of contending or uh, a young team in a similar situation to the books where you, you're convinced that you've got your guys you want to lock in, you've got all your extensions coming up, cap space is going to be any kind of middle of the pack to uh, rebuilding style team. Henson, Henson is a low risk gamble to take because what's the worst that comes out? You're paying him less than 10 million in the final year of his deal. And I mean, you know, he probably can be a backup if given consistent opportunity. I just think the books have always wanted him to be more than a backup. And when they give him those chances, he disappoints so much that he even kind of <laughs> cuts himself out of a potential backup role and ends up somewhere different. It, it really is time to move on. I think an interesting element, like people talk about uh, in the last week, oh, like the Henson deal is one of Hammond's mistakes. Henson being traded has never been more likely than the man who believes in him enough to give him that extension now no longer being the GM. You know, so whoever comes in is is going to assess the... Or even if it's Zanuck, like, I mean, Zanuck isn't going to have the greatest impression of Henson from his year with the organization. They're going to assess things and they're going to go, okay, things are getting pretty tight for us cap-wise. Uh, where is the obvious place we can improve the team? That would be Henson. <laughs> Uh, particularly because I, I think we'll get to Spencer Hawes in a few minutes, but I think Spencer Hawes is likely to opt in. If Spencer Hawes opts in, you've got three bigs, and your 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 big man rotation should be fine. Let's let's assume Monroe opts in, or he opts out, they resign him, whatever. You'll have three guys. You can move Henson, maybe open up some cap space that you can do something else in free agency, or. Swap in for someone who might give you some help in the backcourt or on the wings or whatever it happens to be. I like John Henson a lot. I always have. I think he's he's one of the most likable players on the books team. Anytime you watch John Henson talk or, or you listen to him talk. I don't know what you get out of just watching him talk. But anytime you listen to him talk, um, it's clear that he, he really has a deep affinity for Milwaukee, for the organization at this point. He has put a lot in over the years into engaging with the fans and kind of playing his part in the community around the books. I would say John Henson is a good locker room guy. Um, all kind of reports have always tended to indicate that. It's just not happening on the court at this point. Yeah. This year, just to, I guess, 
just to back that up with some cold <laughs> hard numbers. Um, worst year per thirty six of his career in terms of points. Um, not great in terms of rebounds. Nine point five per thirty six. Uh, not great in terms of assists, although you don't expect that of him. But he's even down on kind of his better marks in terms of blocks. Only two point five blocks per thirty six. That's not John Henson. John Henson's a guy who really should be around four to five blocks per thirty six minutes. His shooting percentage even dropped the second worst mark of his career at 51.5%. The one thing that I will give John Henson a lot of credit for this year is the colossal jump he made at the free throw line. Shot 69.2% from the line, which is a comfortable career high, over 10% improvement from last year when he set a career high of 59% from the free throw line. So, hey, look, whoever whoever's listening out there who wants them some John Henson, he can even chew free throws now. Look at that. Seven out of ten free throws. Who doesn't want some of that? The Bucks, but everyone else should want some. Right, Jordan? Yeah. I made the prediction oh, quite a while back that, you know, this deal would happen around the draft. Might happen before the draft. That has been um, <laughs> thrown into jeopardy by the fact that they may not have a person who's allowed to make those moves. That's, a, that's another interesting part. Okay, it's one thing saying, oh, Justin Zanuck will handle the draft. He'll make the picks. What if someone makes a call on draft night and offers, like, uh, a top five pick for Jabari? Not saying that's going to happen. But what if someone calls and does something like that and you have a core piece that someone's looking for a potentially really valuable what if the Blazers want to trade Damian Lillard for Jabari get, I mean Jordan, just put throwing that get out get out of here Jordan spitballing but really what if that what if that call happens and he's like um, oh I'm not allowed to make that call or, or he just makes that call. He's like, yeah, okay, let's do that. He's at the phone. His hand is hovering over the phone. And they're like, no, don't, don't you dare. Like, they're they're <laughs> scolding him as he's, like, about to hit. I like that image. Put it down. Let it go to the voicemail. That, that is another element to this all of this. This is Neil O'Shea here. Sorry. <laughs> That's another element to all of this. And it's one that, you know, Henson would seem most likely to factor into. If they were to be proactive around that time in moving him, that's one of the best times to do it. This isn't a, a year where teams are going to be looking for free agent centers. I don't know if that makes it any better when if it's later in the summer you're trying to move John Henson then. Draft night's probably the time to do it. The uncertainty, Jordan. It's not fun. I don't like it. As Tom Petty once sang, the waiting is the hardest part. A man who we had one particular listener, maybe not a listener, definitely one particular reader and commenter on the site from way, way back. He called it. He always wanted this to happen. For years, he was persistent. He stayed true. He wanted Spencer Hawes on the books. Spencer Hawes was always going to be the solution to all the book's problems for this one particular commenter. You might think that I'm making this up. This can't possibly be true. Ask around the book's community. We've all we've all been there. We all know this man. And he finally we've all been graced with the the Hawes stands presence. He finally got his wish, and I know we haven't heard from him in quite a long 
while. So I just hope wherever he is, whatever he's doing, he has enjoyed the last few months. As I know you have, Jordan. Yes. <laughs> On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you grade the Spencer Hall's experience? Well, there's different factors of how I uh, make this Let's ranking. Let us hear them. Um... Well, ter- well, obviously the production's got to be there. The flair in terms of how he produces. I'm talking about like and ones because he had some particularly amazing and ones this year. Um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of other <laughs> things. <laughs> Celebrations. I don't know. I would. You know, I'm going to say this. I'm going. This you're gonna. People are gonna call me crazy. And this that would that would have been before I saved this <laughs> this number. I'm gonna go eight. I'm gonna go eight. Eight. He was the single. He was a horseshoe effect. He turned things around for this Bucks team. There was a point was that not where Terrence he. Jones? <laughs> that was not Terrence Jones you or sure? Axel to Axel Tupon. It wasn't Axel uh, Tupan. He was gone too soon. But Terrence Jones, I mean, if we're to look at the book's record with Terrence Jones, the book's record without Terrence Jones. Damning evidence. But there was a, at one point where Spencer Hawes was undefeated in the starts that I, I went to the point of tracking these wins. And even then, after, I mean, he was pretty successful. When he, or not starts, it wasn't starts. When he played, the Bucks were very successful. Yeah, they're still undefeated in Spencer Hall's starts because he's because he didn't start. Um, this was a very good year, actually, between Charlotte and Milwaukee for Spencer Hall's. Uh, if we just narrow it down to his time with the books, although it is a small sample size, 19 games in the regular season. Uh, career high per 36 in terms of scoring, 17.5 points per 36 minutes. Career high in terms of assists per 36 at four assists. And as a book, he shot 50.8% from the field, which would be, you guessed it, a career high. He kind of owned what his role was when he came in. Um, They didn't really look to do more than that with him. He was... Like what, twelve games straight? I think he was a DMP before he finally got his chance. But there are twelve and seven when has when Spencer Hawes played. By the way, what about when Terrence Jones played, or just was there? Um, <laughs> not when he played. That's not. It's not a big sample size. Well, I think it's most impressive for me while Jordan gets his abacus out there. I think Spencer Hawes was. He was. He was more. All you could ask for him to be and more. And that was without kind of taking on that little bit extra. Is he important to the team? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, Bucks were 13-3 and when Terrence Jones was on the team. (laughs) That's free agent target number one. I think for Hawes, though, it's, it's just like anything he gave you was a bonus. 
and y- yet he still managed to give you something in games that actually mattered. Uh, wasn't it? It was the Clippers. Was it the Clippers game that he was his Raptors? Game? I remember that Raptors specifically. Game, right. he did, he that was the birth of the that was the birth of Yeehaws. It was. That was the birth of Yeehaws. Um, I would be perfectly happy if he was back next year. Just so, I mean, we've we've had a rough time recently in terms of some of my favorite photoshops. The gambler is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeehaws needs to live on. There's others too. Actually, there's a lot tied to. To free agency, the Tony. I have some Tony Snell ones. Um, Easily, that I mean that is my identity. I'm, my identity I'm is purely, a Jeopardy. Force. I'm purely talking about my own Photoshop shorts. Oh, where I have my Zach Morris Tony Snell one. <laughs> I also have a Greg Monroe one that's never actually been aired. Was very close on a number of occasions. But I'm particularly proud of it, so I need it to come back so that, that one can can eventually get out in the world. We also, I mean, Vine is dead, but that spectacular Vine where he rolls his eyes and he's like smiling. Oh my god! They, they, so ah. many vines, so many vines of Greg Monroe. So many vines, so little time. Yeah, eight seconds to be precise. Six. Was it six? I believe it was six. You might be right. I don't know. I should know that really, but yeah. Vine is dead, Spencer Hulls is not. That's a very distinct way to look at Does he come back next year? Does he opt in? Well, that, to me, is the greatest decision of all the, the Bucks have to face this summer. Uh, he's, he's staying. He's staying. He is owed $6,021,175 next year. So that is the six million twenty one thousand one hundred and seventy five dollar question: Is Will Spencer Hawes opt in? I don't think he's. He does have a. a he does market. have a a a, res, a resemblance to Lee Majors. That's the that's the man who played the the six million dollar man. That was a TV show. Yeah, he doesn't have any resemblance, but it was convenient, not at all convenient for the joke. We move on to the mailbag. I don't think you've got anything else to say on Spencer Hawes. <laughs> Spencer Hall. You have to remember, there was a point where I do want to. I do have to point this out. There was a point where I was aggravating Adam. I didn't. I I was hoping that this was not going to come up. I thought we just got past it. So (laughs) there was a point where I was so I I was spinning my lasso in in honor of Mister Spencer Hawes that. I was comparing him to Nikola Jokic to <laughs> purely to, to, to anger Adam, which uh, was pretty successful. Um, and I still hold true to that comparison. Mailbag time. The first one from David Dunn 21. This, one's, this one is addressed directly to me. <laughs> Mr. McGee, does the shocking departure of John Hammond weeks before the draft finally underscore the cursed state of the Bucks franchise for you? Do you see how damned we are to push that boulder up the hill every year just to watch it roll down again? Not really. I mean, I'm, I don't need convincing on all of that other stuff right now, but I mean... They literally decided to let him go. So John Hammond doesn't come into it. I don't believe in curses. I believe the books 
have found ways to be incredibly inept for a long time. <laughs> and this may ultimately prove to be one of those cases. Or who knows, maybe it will be a positive at the end. But as we said to open up this week's episode, um, the process of all of this is certainly looking flawed right now. I don't believe the books are cursed, though. What curse franchise gets Yanis? Yes, Jordan. Yeah, you, you, you thought long and hard on that. You ultimately came up with nothing but just a, a brief breath into the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> the next question from Matthew Halka. Any chance we can successfully move Henson and Mirza this offseason? Um, yes, there is a chance that they could do that. I don't think they'll look to move both of them. Um, likely one of the two. Who knows which one it could be. Um, I, I think Henson is the one who, at least with Mirza, from a book's perspective, you know, you had one season, it didn't work out. You had five seasons of the <laughs> Exactly. Um, there's a chance you could see something different from Mirza Talanovic. <laughs> I don't know if you're going to see something different from John Henson. So if it's if it's going to be one of the two, I would definitely look to move John Henson. But is it possible that they could move both this summer? Sure. Um, what do they achieve out of that, as we said before? Not what everyone thinks they'd achieve. If if you were saying, "Oh, twenty-one million cap space, look at all they could do," they could, they could use that to go and chase Chris Paul Jordan. No, they couldn't, and they wouldn't. The next one, from at David Dunn twenty-one. Are the books going to waste valuable time in a courtship of a sexy GM candidate? I mean, have you seen what Obama gets just to speak? <laughs> and those who follow David Dunn twenty one on Twitter will have noticed him. I mean, he he's he's kind of going after your own heart on this joke, and that he's he's letting it kind of build and build with every pass of day. He's not letting this one go, Jordan. You must relate mm-hmm. to that idea. Uh, <laughs> but he has been working the angle of, you know, Barack Obama for for books GM. Uh, whether it happens to be former President Barack Obama or not, will the books waste time in the courtship of a GM? They will definitely spend time, whether it's wasted. Only time will tell. I'm very excited to have Ernie Grunfeld uh, oh, make his stunning return. <laughs> you, you are of the opinion, if we're to be serious on this, though, you think the, the idea of a sexy candidate um, that's not a real thing here. Like, if they do go that route, you're not expecting that kind of person to ultimately end up the job. I guess we're talking uh, more specifically about David Griffin. I feel they have a real chance at Griffin if they make the run. Like, you know, things could break their way. They could end up with him. I know you don't feel like that, and it probably extends beyond David Griffin. Yeah, I don't. I think it's it'll be fruitless. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I just think it's going to be, I, I just, I don't know. I don't see how it, it could possibly be like, be a, like, I don't know. It's got to be like some, it would be something out of left field or something, or maybe Rod Thorne 
sticks a thorn in, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. What's he sticking the thorn in? The side, I don't know. The side of he's, Justin He's Zang, picking a rose. He's picking a rose. It's like the bachelor. He grabs the rose. What if Rod Torn just does this search? And he comes back to me and says, I found the guy. Like, Great, Rod. Who is it? It's me. I'm the Rodney Dangerfield Torn. I'm pretty sure his name isn't Dangerfield's middle name, but I'm going to go with it for this purpose. The next question from Atmatastic. Would you close the site if the books hired me as GM? I don't specifically have that power, but I would do everything in my power to close the site. I feel that would be the point where real life would essentially be over. That would be proof of the simulation. That would be that'd be the latest mm. the latest test that our overlords would be throwing at us in this simulation. Um that is life. So I, I don't know if we'd continue in our current vein, if Matt McClanahan was to suddenly be named as general manager of the Milwaukee books. By close the site, does it mean close the window on the computer that we're using or close it down? Shut, shut it, down. it down. He means shut, shut it down. Shut it down. Hmm. Yeah. I don't, Matt is general manager of, of anything. Terrifying prospect. Even Matt will agree with that. The next one from Atastic. Does anyone have an issue with the books signing Paddy Mills and Joe Ingalls? I would say the salary cap does. <laughs> I was. <laughs> I think anybody. Yeah, I don't think anybody would have an issue of signing them. the The process of signing up would be the issue. Uh, yeah. I particularly like Paddy Mills. I mean, he's come up quite a lot recently, but um, the route to getting Paddy Mills is pretty tricky. Unless, hey, maybe the ownership want to play luxury tax. They may end up doing that anyway this summer. And maybe they do just want to be like, okay, we're here now. We're, we've already put all this money into a new arena. Um, so if we have to pay to get the team in the best possible place to signal that investment, we're prepared to do that. But Hey, we'll we'll find out this summer. Maybe they do that. Maybe they actually they bring their guys back and they go after a Paddy Mills and be like, okay, that would be a surprise. It'd be just the latest in a long line of surprises, though. So, who knows? From at Books Nation thirty four, what's the most important skill you'd want from a rotation guard to complement the current roster, assuming they're a pretty good three point shooter? Track creation, pulling up. Ty had a really good article about this today. They need create like a a person who just could create their own track because I don't. I I'm I'm going to find it difficult to see either Brogdon or Delhi, uh, uh, make strides in that significant strides. I think I think I'll take shot out of it and say creation generally because you want shot yes, creation. Yes. But uh, they need some guys who can make plays for teammates, too. Um, Brogdon and Delhi are both capable of that, but neither are the kind of guy who's going to do do that in any sort of significant volume from night to night. Um, so just, like, I think that is maybe the biggest team the team, team is lacking right now is just creativity among kind of 
outside of Yanis, <laughs> finding creative players is something of a problem for this team. They have a lot of uh, players who are kind of intriguing in terms of their their physical attributes, even some of the skills that they could already kind of put as being pretty concrete, but creativity is not one of them. Yeah. Yeah. And lastly, from at Books Forest. We're going to see a ton of empty seats again next season? Question mark. Um, a little passive aggressive. I think I don't. I think we'll see less empty seats next year than we did this year. That would seem a pretty safe bet. I think everyone in Wisconsin probably knows about Giannis at this point. Um, you would hope and expect the books to be a better team than they were this year. Next year, they're going to be closer to building towards something. Whether they ever get to that point is is a question for another day. But I think there's going to be enough there that people can get excited about it. And obviously. You're also going to have people start thinking as they see the progress of the arena, as they as they drive or walk through the city of Milwaukee and they see a kind of the finishing touches gone, they're going to start thinking, oh, that's, that's a nice arena. We should go there next year. Hmm, I wonder what the books are like. Maybe we should go there now, Jordan. <laughs> There's a whole kind of bunch of factors that will come together, I think. Interest, attendance should only continue to rise for the next few years at least yeah i remember when this issue was popping up especially early in the year and i just think we kind of forget how uh the season goes in terms of attendance just how wisconsin sports fans in general are i don't think it's that bad honestly and i i, I don't think it's that bad either i say that coming from uh i came into this as a hawks fan like, if, if you think there's an attendance problem in Milwaukee, that's a bigger market. That's a team with very, like, consistent track record of success. And that's a problem. Yep. Even when the, the crowd is smaller in the Bradley Center, there tends to be, you tend to feel atmosphere. Um, the people who are there are pretty devoted. There's a, there is a hardcore base of fans already. I don't. I honestly don't think it's as big a problem as everyone makes out to be. Plus, the the thing I've always found weird with this is why does why does anyone care? Like as a fan, why do you care about that? It's different in the playoffs because you want you want to really kind of you know hammer home the the home advantage. You know, you want the building to be fully there to support your team. But beyond that, I mean. Like, fans, if you're not the owners, it's not coming out of your pocket if the, the building isn't completely full. Uh, I know the fan well, experience I, I, is better if it's, like, a, I, I just feel there's a, there's a part of this, right, where if they're in the new arena and they're a 60-win team two, three years from now, and it's sold out every night, and ticket prices are soaring, it's the hottest ticket in town, all everyone's going to complain about then is, Oh, they got the spotlight. I can't go just... to can't go to a books game because it's so expensive. This new ownership, look, they took our tax money and now they charge this much for us to get into the new arena. You know, it's just like where where does any of this stop? It's like, oh, complaining about there's no one there, then if if it's the other way, prices go up and people complain about that. I, I get that. Well, and not just that, it's just it's it'll be the visiting fans, like the Bulls fans. 
Right. Why, why are we defending our home court? But I do think it, because we are still in the age of the Bucks being third fiddle to every other to the other Wisconsin teams, and you know we're only two years removed from the state of the team kind of at a crossroads, where judging from attendance from the like those seasons where, especially when they bottomed out, like those games are. I mean, they were struggling to even cover the lower level, much less the top level. I mean, those are just barren for those types of games. I, it, it's just so – it's a reminder of uh, we're not far removed of just – it speaks to the interest of from this, you know, not just the state, but just that area of Milwaukee and just Milwaukee County of people wanting to go out and see these the, those Bucks teams. Right, but isn't, and, the, isn't the point that I think the, the more important point in all of this, and it's one that you kind of made, is this year is the first year in my time watching the Bucks that I would feel there was not one game where it was like, you know, just an obviously weird atmosphere where there was just all these Laker fans, all these Bulls fans, all these Cavaliers fans. You'll still get small pockets of them because that's those franchises or Cavaliers case, that's LeBron, you know. But I think what has changed is those kind of abhorrent, casual people who choose a team other than their own within the state, there is less of them than there was because the books are giving people reason to support them. Like, I, If there's empty seats, there's empty seats. But I, I don't think what anyone can accuse the books of is having bad fans. You would never hear the players kind of complaining. Like, the, There's always atmosphere. There's always support. By who- Tell that to Zaza. Well, hey, that was an example of, you know, <laughs> the dark side of having people in the arena. <laughs> I I just think I think people it's going to be it's going to be hard to remove that from the fan base until uh it's, you know, right, it's yeah, not a thing right. anymore. But you see my point of when it's not a thing yeah. anymore, there's going to be another issue. It's like what is this is not actually anyone's direct concern it's not like the players are complaining and be like yo we, we just lost that game because there, there weren't enough fans and it kind of felt eerie in the building i think it's haunted it's here a long time yeah there, there's not there's not that sort of thing so if the players don't care and the fans who were there are kind of really locked in and engaged and still doing their best to create a good atmosphere and those who go to the game they're getting cheap tickets because you know they have to sell tickets who cares what does that matter? There are certain games it's different. Obviously, there are certain games where it's like, everyone's got to get out and support. But I mean, if we're going, oh, they're playing the Kings on a Tuesday night in January, and you know, it's not sold out. This is a disgrace. This is, who cares? It means other people get to go and there's cheaper tickets. It's not really affecting anything. It's an ownership issue. They're the ones who have the problem if it's, not sold out. It's their job to turn that round. I just, I can't get my head around why fans get so... Well, they just want to see how the Anderson got tickets to the game. The Anderson got tickets to the game because all these other people didn't want to go to the game. Yeah. I don't It's just, it's always, I don't know, it's funny how... Because I see it from other team, like, like reporters or just fans of other teams in general and it's just an interesting discussion of how because even like a team like the warriors they're how they look at the like 
how fans are reacting to a game or something like that. It's just weird. Like it's it's just a a very odd discussion. I feel like a, a lot of things that are being discussed are very odd. They're I don't all, understand. And I, the longer I do all of this and have to think about it and talk about it, the more there's just things where I'm like, why does anyone care about this element? <laughs> this has nothing to do with anything. Yep. There's, I feel that is one. And again, if like there are certain markets or whatever you could say that in, Let's let's not lose sight of a lot of things, and it, this factors into so much of like you can go from oh well why isn't it full to well why isn't uh, why are they cheering get why, up why couldn't John Hammond sign big name free agents? Milwaukee isn't this kind of leading basketball market. No, that's that that will that will cover both bases. That's why don't they have major free agents? Why, why isn't is Marlon Wayans the GM? I mean, you joke, but who knows? They, they said they were. This was a wide search for general manager. Anything could happen. Tony Romo isn't he a Wisconsin native who's recently got a taste of the NBA? True. <laughs> Anything's possible, Jordan. Anything they love a big name. This ownership group. You can hire the uh, the bachelor that made an appearance at a Bucks game. Right. I forget his. I was at that game too. That was he just a weird experience. His name, but what's his name? I, I said he probably forgets it. Yeah. But yeah, he's he's definitely a contender. And, and it goes back to the rose joke, Rod Thorne. There you go. Just like that, it all ties up so neatly. And that's it for this week. Make sure to check back in with us next week for what was going to be the Jason Kidd and John Hammond podcast, <laughs> which will now be. The Jason Kidd podcast. Uh, I we might find some front office stuff. There will probably be some, but we might find something to talk about just to just to save ourselves from the despair and terrors of the soul Jason Kidd podcast. But yeah, for all of you who love to talk Jason Kidd, that's what we'll be doing next week. In the meantime. Stick with us at Behind the Book Pass. Check out all of our work on site at BehindTheBookPass.com. You can subscribe to our podcast here on iTunes. Add us on SoundCloud. Follow us on Stitcher. Probably the other way around. But what does it matter? All these words that mean the same thing. All these synonyms, Jordan. And as usual, we'll be back next week. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you.